All right, so last week we started this passage, just look at this passage, and I went over a number of issues that make interpreting prophetic literature and the prophetic genre very difficult. And I said specifically that there are a number of challenges in dealing with this passage in particular, and I'm not going to repeat all of them, uh, but what I do want to draw attention to is the fact that what, one of the things I think is germane to helping us interpret this passage is to keep in mind the Semitic mind. One of the key shortcomings of modern prophetic interpretation is that we forget that the message meant someone to the people who first heard it. We have this persistent mentality that the prophet was speaking past the people he was talking to. As if their question is being ignored completely and he's offering a word of of warning or hope or encouragement to people literally thousands of years from the people who are asking a question. And so I showed you from the Old Testament a number of places where there is a prophetic message given. And in the immediate context, there is an application of a passage. And yet we learn that behind it, there's a fuller sense that is realized with the coming of Christ. So for example, we looked at Isaiah 7. And we love to talk about Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And we think, oh, he's talking about Jesus. And he was in the fullest sense. But the message meant something to the people, and when we rip sections of Scripture out of their context, we forget that that language was used in the immediate sense to be a message of hope and of warning to the king of the day. And that the word translated virgin does in fact mean in the broadest sense young woman. And that the young woman did conceive. And we go on in chapter 8 to see the message. And that by the time this child would be of weaned, the enemy that they're facing would be destroyed. But yet we learn, of course, in the coming of Christ that that sign, Emmanuel, is fulfilled in the literalist sense. And then, of course, we looked at Hosea 11, where Egypt, or where God's son is called out of Egypt in its original context. It had a very specific application. But then, in the coming of Christ, we see that passage fulfilled in an even greater sense. This week, I was reading in Ezekiel chapter 38, sorry, 28, uh, and I was reminded of this yet again. Ezekiel 28 is the culmination of a three chapters long oracle against the nation of Tyre. And in chapter 28, we read these very strange words where he's lamenting the king of Tyre, but he uses the language of a guardian cherub. You were a guardian cherub, and I placed you on the mountain of God, and you fell like fire to the earth, and the nations beheld. And so for hundreds of years, we have said, oh, this is talking about Satan. 
But in its immediate context, it seems to be talking about a, a king and a nation that had become very proud. In fact, even in the passage, it talks about their trade was throughout the world. And so what does this mean? Is it about the devil or is it about the king of Tyre? And prophecy oftentimes has an immediate reference point that because of the prophetic perspective, we see that looming behind it is a larger, grander reality. So, when we come to interpret the prophecy of the New Testament, we have to bear in mind that same approach that many times there is an immediate application, but then looming behind it is something greater. And so when Jesus or any of the other New Testament prophets are speaking, they're oftentimes using the same style that was found in the Old Testament to include certain word pictures, certain figures of speech, certain idioms that convey a message. And so, when we read this passage here, people oftentimes wonder, is Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, or is he talking about the end times, the end of the world, or is he talking about a combination of the two? And I say, yes. I don't mean to be coy. One of the things I said last week that I want to reiterate is we must be humble with our interpretation of prophecy. So I'm going to give you my understanding, but bear in mind, I could be wrong. I said last week that the plain thing is the main thing, and the main thing is the plain thing. And the plain thing in this passage is stay awake, pay attention. The key to being faithful in the future is to be prepared in the present. Okay? So hold on to his word. Do not be led astray. Do not let yourself be deceived into trusting in false messiahs who ultimately will only fail you and lead you to ruin. That's the main thing. So if you read this passage or any other prophecy and you come away thinking, that's scary, I'm scared now, let me say to you, you haven't done it quite right. God does not give prophecies to his children to scare you. He gives it to you to prepare you so you can be faithful in the midst of affliction and persecution. He wins. That's the end of the story. He wins. And you win with him. In fact, you're going to win so much you'll be tired of winning, but you'll just keep on winning anyway. Sorry, I just couldn't get that out there. All right. So, I'm trying to be humble with my perspective, but let me share with you the three main approaches. The first approach to this passage is that Jesus is almost solely addressing the end of the world. This perspective focuses on verses 24 through 27. That very cataclysmic language of the coming with clouds... And all eyes seeing him, they focus on that and they say, see, this passage is about the end of the world. 
They look forward a few verses ahead in verse 19 where it says the tribulation of that day is such that it will be greater than anything that's ever been. And they say, aha, that's the great tribulation. Okay? The second perspective is that this passage is almost solely addressing the destruction of Jerusalem. And that interpretation bases itself upon three things. One, the statement of Jesus at the beginning corresponding to the question of the disciples, when will this take place? You just said this temple will be torn down. When will it take place? And then scattered throughout this passage are geographical references to Judea, localizing it in a place. But then verse 30 is their big verse. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That verse is very significant. And exegetical gymnastics has been done in the last couple hundred years to try to get that, word, that verse to mean something other than a normal generation. As we talked about last week, the word generation is used 38 times in the New Testament. And if it does not mean a literal generation here, it's the only place in the New Testament where it doesn't. So, now verse, the third option that is very common is to see a combination of two. That Jesus is talking about the end of Jerusalem but then there's a neat section division at verse 24, and now starting at verse 24, he talks about the end of the world. But again, verse 30 comes after that, saying that all this stuff is going to happen in one generation. So, my perspective is a fourth option. It's not mine alone, but it is what it is. I believe that by and large, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's using prophetic imagery to do so, but the language of verses 24 through 27 become a trigger, and they serve as a type of what eventually we uncover in later New Testament writings to be how Jesus will come back in fact. And so, after verse 30... You see verse 31, and I would propose that verse 31 serves as the actual section break, that rather than providing a mere stamp of approval uh, asserting the authority of his words, verse 31 serves as the introduction to his next section, where he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, but concerning that day, the day that heaven and earth passes away. Every other reference today in this passage up to that point is always in the plural. Days, days, those days, after those days, those days, in those days, days. It's always plural. But later New Testament teaching speaks about the abruptness of when Christ comes and ends all of history. It's a dramatic cataclysmic moment. So in that day, that day. Jesus is the only one in the Bible who uses the expression that heaven and earth will pass away. And it's used only here in the Olivet Discourse. So he's the first one. And then later New Testament writers pick up on that and they say that after Christ comes and after there's the judgment, what do we have then? A new heaven and a new earth. 
So the passing away of heaven and earth is seen as a cataclysmic moment that introduces a new heaven and a new earth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have verse 31, the exact phrase of 31, immediately preceding their sections that have the most global universal of the language. Now, Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse is the most exhaustive. When people want to study this, 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 this speech that he gave sitting on the Mount of Olives, they typically look at Matthew because it is so much more exhaustive. So Matthew chapter 24 corresponds to Mark 13. And I want to encourage you to read Matthew 24 at some other time. But after the equivalent of verse 31 here, that's where you have even in Matthew's gospel, the Son of Man coming and he gathers the sheep from the goats and he separates them and he casts the goats into the lake of fire. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's much more universal. And I would suggest to you that here in this passage then, we see Jesus addressing the question set before him by the disciples. And I think that Matthew captures the fuller question. If you look at Matthew 24.3, which corresponds to Mark 13.2, you see the fuller question. In Mark 13.2, 13.3, it says, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? But then in Matthew, it's added, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Their question is posed in response to Jesus walking out saying, every single one of these stones will be torn down. Not one will be left on top of another. The temple truly was the center of the Hebrew universe. They could not fathom the idea that the temple could come down and it not be the end of the world. Remember, these are people who, just even a chapter earlier, couldn't get the concept of Jesus repeatedly saying he's going to come back from the dead. So in their mind, if the temple comes down, this is the center, this is ground zero of God's presence with his people. If the temple comes down, it's the end of the world. And God's people and subsequent generations have continued to struggle with that same notion. You can read, there's all sorts of existing writings from about the time of the fall of Rome. They thought it was the end of the world. Remember all the hullabaloo around Y2K? People thought it was the end of the world. And I promise you that if the U.S. suddenly got invaded by China and the U.S. came crumbling down, you would have people, you would have a number of people thinking that the end of the world was surely upon us. People are prone to thinking that when everything they know crumbles, that everything is about to crumble. So what Jesus does here then is he responds to their question. When will this be? What will be the sign? That's the direct question. And so I believe... That, uh, that Jesus, in his response, using prophetic perspective, offers them an answer to their question. But like I said last week, he doesn't do so in a way that they have a road map to avoiding trouble. Rather, they have the rough outline so as to enable them to persevere in the midst of difficulty. 
And yes, we know that in the early church there was a lot of false messiahs. We have, for example, even the letter of 2 Thessalonians, which was written to that congregation for the purpose of helping assure them that they hadn't missed the second coming. People were expecting the coming of Christ any day. And so they were easily led astray. But notice in verse 5, when he says his answer, he starts by saying, see to it that no one leads you astray. That is his number one concern. So they ask, when, will the, when is everything going to go down? His response, see to it that no one leads you astray. But then he goes on. Many are going to come in my name. There's going to be all sorts of people saying, I'm the Messiah, which we know happened in the early decades of the first millennium, which has happened to this day. People claiming to be the Christ. David Koresh, Heaven's Gate. Remember those people? People claim to be the Christ routinely. See to it that no one leads you astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So he starts by telling us what are signs that the end isn't present. People routinely think that these opening verses are signs that, the end, that things are ramping up and we're approaching the, the terminus state for sure because there's wars, there's earthquakes, there's pestilence, there's famine. There's Why do we think so? Because it says these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, drawing from our own analogy, our own mind, we know that birth pains mean that the birth is, is imminent, any moment. Okay. Well, just be mindful of the fact that Romans 8.22 tells us that the creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth since the fall. So the language of childbirth, these are the pains of childbirth, is not the language that up any moment now the baby's about to be born it's an indicator that the pain you're going through, while it will increase as history progresses, is going to find its terminus in the production of something. Something comes out of labor. In labor, your pain is not in vain. You get something for your suffering. And so, just like the creation has been groaning in childbirth since the fall, these signs right here, the wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the famines... It is a sign of the suffering of this age. We indicate, we, we routinely think, oh, there's more wars now, there's more earthquakes now, oh, it's getting more. Maybe, but there was so much warfare back then. We even read in the New Testament that there was such a huge bad famine that the Apostle Paul was going around collecting money to be sent to the Jerusalem church. And the suffering was so incredible at what was going on that Paul was advising people because of the present distress not to get married. Times were tough back then. And times are routinely tough. But the end is not yet. So don't be alarmed. Every time there's a tsunami or an earthquake or a war, don't start running around like your hair's on fire that the world is ending. Maintain your cool. Okay? Steady on. Steady on. Be faithful. Be faithful. And then, in verse 9, he says, but be on guard. You're going to be persecuted. Verses 9 
through 13 are all about persecution. And in the midst of this, verse 10 happens. But the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And we talked last week about how the apostles are saying by the, by the end of their own age, they're t- using the language of the gospel having gone to all nations. But what it means here, in the midst of a discourse about persecution, it's meant to encourage you. You will be persecuted. You will be betrayed by your family. Children will give their parents over. To save their own neck, you will be betrayed. You will be hunted down. You will be subject to inquisition and inquiry and penalty, death. But in the midst of it, the gospel will be proclaimed to all the world. Do you see what that is saying? That suffering, that persecution, is not the, the smothering blanket of the gospel being spread. Rather, it's the context that provides for the spread and the dissemination of the gospel throughout the world. The world will not triumph over the gospel. The gospel will, in fact, persist and spread despite or in the midst of persecution. That's what will happen. But then Jesus gets to the crux of it. After saying, okay, you're going to hear of wars, and there were lots of wars in those 40 years between Jesus and, uh, and, and the 80, 70. There are lots of wars, lots of famines, lots of earthquakes, lots of stuff. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, in verse 14, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So there's a sign. Now he's finally given them a sign. When you see this taking place, Run for your life. And he goes on to be pretty dramatic. You know, don't even come back into your house to get your coat. You know, if you're in a field, you, you just drop your, your, your pickaxe and you run. You know, let's pray that it doesn't happen in winter where travel is more difficult. Pity pregnant women and those who are nursing because they won't be able to run fast enough. We're not talking about the end of the world here because at the end of the world, no one's running. It's too late. Your running won't get you anywhere. There's nowhere to run when the Lamb returns. In Revelation, we hear that the people will cry for the mountains to fall upon them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. There's nowhere to run at this final day. But here, in AD 70, there's a time to run. You see, what he's talking about here is a very narrow window of opportunity they had to escape. And what we know from this era is in large part given to us from Josephus, who was that Jewish general who was captured and imprisoned, but then released when he gave a a favorable prophetic uh, blessing to General Vespasian that he would become Caesar, and lo and behold, he became Caesar, so General Vespasian kept him on as a good luck charm. And Josephus wrote about this. So here's what goes down. In AD 66, the zealots finally rebel against Rome, the zealot rebellion, and they push the Roman garrison out of the temple, out of Judea. They push it, and they actually push the Roman legions out of all of Israel. But it didn't take very long until General Vespasian, with his son, General Titus, as his executive officer, they marched back. And in very short order, they had retaken Galilee, which was the 
the county in the north. They had retaken Samaria, which is the, the, the county in the middle. And now they had just entered in 68, two years after they had been kicked out, Roman forces marched into Judea. But then they stopped. Because in 68, Nero committed suicide. And from 68 until 69, there was a one-year civil war in Rome. You can read about this. And in that one year, there were four emperors. But then at the end of it, the Senate said, enough. And they elected Vespasian to be the senator, or to be the emperor. And he had to march back to Rome. I, I, I don't know the logistics of the day. I don't know why his whole military had to leave with him. But they left so he could go to Rome and become emperor. He was gone. They were gone about 10 months. And by mid-69, they were back. Okay, they were gone about 10 months. But shortly after they left, something horrible happened. And you can read about it. You can Google it. It's called the Zealot Temple Siege. It was so horrific that even Josephus thought it was the fulfillment of Daniel 11, the abomination that causes desolation. Something that's so blasphemous, so sacrilegious, that it renders the temple and its use desolate, unable to be used anymore. The zealots were not pious Jews. They were Jewish nationalists. Okay? And so their religion for them was simply part of their ethnic identity. They were not pious Jews. So what they did is they finally amassed the numbers. They were livid that their early gains in 66 had been apparently squandered by the Jewish authorities. So they in mass in 60, late 68, early 69, marched on the temple. And they entered and occupied the temple. And they commenced to slaughtering in the temple the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and all of their political opponents. They even slaughtered people in the Holy of Holies. Blood was running down the steps of the temple. And then, because they couldn't quite finish the job, they opened the city gates to the Edomites, to the Idumeans. And so now you had pagans coming into the temple with them to aid them in the butchery of their own people. And when that happened, the people were aghast. But then... What they did was they went a little too far. They brought in someone who was psychologically and developmentally challenged from the field, and they dressed him up in the priestly garb, and they marched him around the temple making a mockery of their old custom. And that event was so egregious that it caused an uprising in the city. And that's when the zealots with their Edomite compadres put the kibosh on the whole city of Jerusalem. They locked the city down. They slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people. By that point, escape was impossible. From the time the, the temple siege began to the time they occupied the city and shut down the gates was approximately three weeks you know, historically. So they had a very short window to get out of Dodge. And then, of course, within months, the Roman army was back. And anyone who did manage to find a way to escape was crucified when the Roman forces found them. So Rome basically let them suffer and smother themselves and suffocate. And in the plagues and the murders, 
and the famine, nearly a million people died before Rome ever even entered the city. And then, of course, once they entered the city, they did a lot more killing. But the tales that Josephus passes along of the way the people were treated, with the cannibalism, the, the, the egregious treatment, it was aghast. The suffering was incredible. But because the Christian community had heeded the word of the Lord, the Christian community escaped. And they made their way to Pella, which is a city on the other side of the River Jordan, and they survived. But the Jewish people who were there were not so fortunate. Instead of heeding Jesus' word, they went with the conventional wisdom of the day. When there's an invading army, you go to the city. Unfortunately for them, Rome knew how to take a city. And so they killed everyone, almost. The ones they didn't kill, they imprisoned. And wouldn't you know it, the Colosseum that later was used to kill our own brothers and sisters was built by enslaved survivors. Titus marches into Jerusalem. He sees the temple, and he's impressed by its beauty. He wanted to preserve it. Did you know that? He wanted to preserve the temple. He just wanted to take the gold out from it. But someone, somehow, it was miraculous, a fire started in the temple the night before the gold removal was to begin. And it burnt down all of the, all of the, the, the woodwork and the tapestries and everything that was inside it. It turned that thing into an oven. And what it did is it melted the gold. And in Josephus, we learned that that gold had run down through the cracks and it made it to the, like the subterranean drainage system for the, for the uh, temple. And Titus didn't want to destroy the temple, but he wanted that gold. So he tore that temple apart brick by brick to get down to get the gold. And so thus fulfilled the word of Jesus. So, the words here, run for your life. Run. Verse 19 says that that tribulation is such a tribulation that had not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. But we learn that that is a figure of speech often used in the Old Testament. It's used any time they want to say that something is extremely significant. For example, uh, it says that the scandal caused by the people of Israel rejecting their God is a scandal that's greater than has ever been or ever will be. You learn that the Babylonian army, its might, it says, is greater than any army before it or ever that will be. But we happen to know, as a matter of fact, it was not the most powerful army ever, or else Babylon would still be here. It's a figure of speech that it was horrible. And really, how do you quantify human suffering to say that it's the most suffering? I mean, how do you quantify that? Millions of people, we have... Suffering is horrible, and when it's on a scale like this, I can think of something from the 20th century that very closely compares, and that would be the starvation of Leningrad. A million and a half people were starved to death. Suffering is horrible, and this was horrible. And it says that if God had not cut short the days, every single one of them would have died, but for the sake of the elect, God allowed the days to be cut short. Now, what do we mean by that? God has promised that not all Jews are going to go to hell. 
Some Jews will be saved. Some Jews will believe in Jesus. Throughout history, there are Jews who will come to faith in Jesus. And in the final day, we, I believe the Bible teaches that God will soften their hearts so that there will be a larger number of them who believe. But if God wiped out all the Jews in AD 70, that would mean there's no more Jews nowadays to be among the elect, would there? If God killed all the Japanese people, wouldn't that be saying that there's no more elect people among the Japanese? If God killed all the Americans, wouldn't that mean there's no more elect among the Americans? But for the sake of the elect that are still going to come from the people of Israel, God preserved a remnant of the people of Israel to walk the earth from their number. We have the elect of their people. And that's a pattern that you see throughout Scripture. God is patient with the wicked of the world because he doesn't want his elect to perish. And so his people then are the reason why the wicked people get some measure of grace. But then the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. In verse 24, some people see that as shifting to the new topic, possibly. But that is a very, very common figure of speech used in the Old Testament for something catastrophic happening. It's used in Ezekiel 32 when he talks about the upcoming invasion of Egypt by Babylon. It's used in Isaiah 13 concerning the fall of Babylon. It's used in Joel 2.8 regarding Israel and their upcoming destruction by the Babylonian army. It's used routinely whenever God is going to do something big and it always represents the overthrow of a system. And so I think what's happening here is that it's using that same language, a very consistent language, to convey that the old system that is the Jewish covenant people have now been overthrown. The Jewish covenant is gone. The old covenant has been made obsolete in the words of Hebrews 2.8 and has passed away. And Jesus has set up his kingdom. And coming with the clouds is a throwback to Daniel 7 where the Son of Man is presented to the Father and he receives a kingdom. And in the words of Psalm 110, he must reign until all enemies have been subjected to him. And he sends out then as the newly enthroned king, he sends out his angels, which we learn in subsequent scriptures, angels are oftentimes used as a code word for his messengers or his ministers. He sends out his ministers among the world to gather his people And he gathers them from the four corners. Again, that language itself is used of God gathering his people after the exile. So every single phrase in this passage is used previously in the Old Testament to refer to God doing something. But then, of course, we get to verse 28. Learn the lesson. Listen and look at the signs and pay attention and act accordingly. So there's a sign that Jesus has just given. The abomination of desolation standing where it shouldn't be. When that happens, listen to it. Obey it. Heed it. This generation will not pass away until all this takes place. And then he goes on in verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. But concerning that day, no one knows. So wait. In verse 30, he says that he can locate it to a time. Everything here is going to take place within a generation. But concerning heaven and earth passing away, no one knows the day or the time. Because remember, in Matthew 24, 3, they've asked, when will be the end of the age, the world? 
No one knows that. But be prepared because there will be no sign. Read the rest of 32 through 37. You will see the point of it is there is no advance warning that it's coming except for the commandment to be awake and be ready for when it comes. But concerning everything that came before, in verse 28 to 29, he does reference a sign for that set of circumstances. So the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem had signs that could be paid attention to. I don't know about you, but a Roman army marching towards me would have been sign enough. There was a sign. Pay attention to it, he says in verse 28 and 29. But concerning heaven and earth passing away, no one knows the day or the hour. But be ready. There will be no sign. He'll come suddenly. And if he finds you asleep, you'll be doomed. And then later New Testament writings reveal that this presence of the Son of God coming in his glory, while here it's spoken of in the same way that God is spoken of as coming in the Old Testament, Behold, the Lord comes quickly in clouds. That's what it says in Isaiah. They don't literally get to behold this. They're called to see the evidence of him having come. But later we learned that in Acts 1, 9, we learned that the same way he went away, he will come. And we learned that every eye will see him and every tongue will confess. So these words then take on a grander, fuller vision, and the destruction of Jerusalem then serves as a type of what will befall the world that we learn in Revelation when the wrath of God is poured out over all the world and he executes judgment on all flesh. So I think he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem using the language consistent with Old Testament prophecy, but that it finds a transition point at verse 31 where he's now addressing their query about the end of the world. And I believe this whole passage finds its greater fulfillment, not just in the destruction of an Old Testament temple, but in ultimately the coming of the Son of God to judge the world. Let's pray.